0: episode 302 for May 2014. Hey Crawl Spacers, welcome to The Wizard of St. Louis Comic Con. We're here with Danny Fingeroth, the former editor of Amazing Spider-Man.
1: Amazing Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, Marvel Team-Up starring Spider-Man, <laughs> Spider-Man Unlimited, wow. Spider-Man buys lunch, Spider-Man picks his nose, anything and everything with Spider-Man, I was the editor I of I love it. Uh, talk about when you started with Marvel. I started with Marvel in the bygone era In the year 1977, which is not what it says in Wikipedia. Wikipedia makes me even older than I am. I started in 1977 as the assistant in the British Department to Larry Lieber, who, of course, is Stan's brother brother and is famous in his own right as he's still the artist of the Spider-Man newspaper strip. And Larry was the uh, man who wrote the script of the first Iron Man story, the first Thor story. He's the guy who invented the term Uru, and many other things. So that was my first job as the assistant. Now, was that based in New York, or where was that based? It was based in New York. We had a New York office in the Marvel office, and there also was a British office. And my counterpart in England was a uh, turned was a guy named Neil Tennant, uh-huh. who turned out to be uh, one of the Pet Shop Boys. Oh. <laughs> but we didn't know that then. He was just this guy <laughs> in the really cool. in the British uh, the British office in
0: in London. Cool. And Spider Man had different original stories in Britain, didn't it?
1: Uh, Spider Man did. did not, but there was an original um, there was an original series called Captain Britain. Okay, right. Uh, There were some original Hulk stories at one point. I can't, you know, maybe either before or after I was doing it, there might have been original Spider-Man. We did a lot of original covers and new splash pages because they used to take the stories and break them down, or we used to take them and break them down into shorter, like you take a 17 or a 20 or 22-page story and break it into six or seven-page chapters and then do a new splash page, which would usually, that was a good training ground for new writers and new artists. And uh, because the... British had a tradition, maybe they still do, of their comics coming out weekly with a lot of short features in each comic. kind
0: of like we do now with weekly comics.
1: I guess guess so. And then there was also, um, at one point, I was the assistant on the Star Wars comic, uh, which they were using in a comic called Star Wars Weekly that lasted, uh, that, that came out, we gave like 11 pages every... Uh, two weeks now every week, so that means we were using comics, uh, the Star Wars uh, comics, double the rate in, uh, in America, so we were way ahead. That was the only one of the few comics that was way ahead of schedule, and I ended up becoming the assistant editor to Archie Goodwin on because I was so involved with that. Talk about
0: your your love of Spider Man when you first discovered the character. I'm, I'm assuming you love Spider Man.
1: I do. You know, I love Spider Man. Um, I don't think I owned Amazing Fantasy 15, but I definitely bought Amazing Spider-Man number one off the newsstand. No, no. Um, what happened to it, <laughs> You know, I, 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 at, at various points in my life, I made misguided efforts at maturity, and, uh, and so I think I either gave them away. I think there was a woman who lived in my building who used to uh, work at a hospital, and so I would give her comics to give to the kids. So, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not... I've never been one of those people who puts things in plastic bags. And I probably should have been, but my collection is well-thumbed and well-worn. I like the story, went to a sick kid as opposed yeah, to the trash can. There I'm you go. go. Well, that's true. That is a good story. Um, so, uh, Spider-Man, I like Spider-Man well enough. As a kid, my favorites was, def- you know, Far and Away, the Fantastic Four, and Storanko's Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and I loved Iron Man. I, I, and I said I like Spider-Man well enough, but I don't think I really... Appreciated Spider-Man until I was involved with the character professionally.
0: Talk about how you became, did you start as the editor of uh, Amazing Spider-Man, All the Titles?
1: Uh, well, I worked, um, I started, as I said, as, uh, I worked for Larry in the British department. Then a guy named Des Skin came over. He was a British publisher, and he actually, you might know him as the editor and publisher of Warrior Magazine in the 80s. Des, uh, you know convinced Marvel that maybe these British comics should be put out by actual British people what a concept (laughs) Um, and so at that point I went into the mainstream. Larry went over to the Hulk strip and the Spider-Man strip and I went into the mainstream editorial I was uh, I did a line of reprint books for Jim Shooter and then I became Louise Simonson's assistant on the X-Men books and Star Wars and Star Trek and Conan and we had a lot a lot of books and then uh, a couple years later I became promoted to be the editor of of all the Spider-Man titles
0: and now I got this off a comic vine for the the issues that you did this could be incorrect but correct me if I'm wrong you started with 246 and went till 263
1: of Amazing Uh, (laughs) United you know that's more or less There, there were some issues where I edited them but didn't get credit others I did get credit but didn't but Basically, yeah, that... uh, Yeah, it sounds more like... Roger, Roger... That was my first phase in the 80s. Then I... Uh, later on, I was the editor of the books again in the 90s. So, but this in that first phase. So, yeah. f- by rough
0: estimates, uh, Amazing 246 you started uh, until 263, and then you came back in the 90s from 346 up to 400. I'll, ta- I'll take your word You'll for it. A- okay. okay. Talk one of the one of the milestones during your first run was 252. What was it like to release that issue? It was sold out. I couldn't find a copy. Of
1: it. Um, With the black suit. Yeah, yeah. That was the first appearance of the black suit. Well, we knew it would be big, but I don't, I don't think anybody knew how big and and uh, you know there was um, a certain amount of trepidation because we were messing with the suit of this iconic character and so people could just as easily have hated it or I mean they could I guess it's always possible if someone is scanning the racks and looking for Spider-Man, and they see this guy in the black suit, maybe they would, but they wouldn't think it was Spidey. But obviously, it worked out very well. Uh, it was a great cover that Ron Friends and uh, and Klaus Jansen did. Uh, it was a transition period between Defalco, uh, between Stern and Defalco as well. So there was a lot going on. And it was also part of the Secret War, you know, it was the beginning of the Secret War. So there was all this stuff going on. Nobody had ever really done a crossover of that scale before. So if I had to try to remember, I have a feeling I was probably as much or more concerned with making the um, entry, you know, the, 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 all the comics ended one month with the characters disappearing into this big construct in Central Park. And then they, and they emerge. So I think uh, the next month, I was probably as much or more concerned with making that work. And the suit was just, well, it's a gimmick that we'll have for a couple of months. But, of course, it turned out to be so popular that we ended up doing riffs on it to this day. I mean, Venom is the ultimate riff on the suit. Now, now, the the rumor, you can
0: uh, put this to rest. Jim Shooter bought the cost, black costume idea for, I guess, 100 bucks from
1: a kid or something. Is that true? Well, he... On a, <laughs> You know, I don't know if it was a kid I think it was it was it was a aspiring writer okay. who sent in the idea for the black suit um, and then I guess uh, Jim I never saw it I don't remember seeing it but I think Jim didn't like the guy's writing I didn't think he was ready I don't but but he did like the idea of the black Spider-Man suit so they paid him in my mind is I in my mind is either 500 or 1000 I think it was more than 100 bucks and don't forget, this is thirty years ago, when that was equal to two thousand now or three. I mean, it was you know, it was it was certainly
0: you know. If you look at some Marvel Age images, the uh, the white on the black suit was also red. They colored it a little bit differently, and then they decided to go with the white. Any thoughts on that,
1: or uh, well, I mean, I that I was involved with. Okay. Um, the red looks pretty yeah, good. You know, look when you when you as part of the process of designing a character in a costume, was you go through different uh, color schemes so I mean again I'll take your word for it if you say we did red I guess we did red but you know I, I don't remember there being much debate the white seemed the most striking against the black costume.
0: Now talk about when you left around 263 and you came back what was it f- five years later I guess when five you came? Five years later. What brought you back?
1: Um, I, I went freelance in 1984 jeez I decided I wanted to try my hand at going freelance, and I became the writer of Web of Spider-Man for a time. And uh, there was all sorts of uh, interesting stuff going on in the office. But I ended up was the editor of um, the Marvel Saga, which I worked on with the great Peter Sanderson. And uh, I did that as a freelance editor. I also wrote Cyforce, and I wrote um, several a lot, a lot of. Iron Man and um, just a whole bunch of different assorted stuff and then I just uh, at a certain point there were things going on both professionally and personally that made me feel like I wanted to come back on staff. and I had a standing offer from Jim Shooter and from Tom DeFalco that anytime I wanted to come back the next opening would be mine so that's what happened and, uh, but I didn't get the Spider-Man books right away. I got uh, a lot of epic comics. I worked with uh, Cadillacs and Dinosaurs. I worked with Dennis Kitchen on that project, as well as with uh, Mark Schultz. And uh, I was the editor who launched uh, The New Warriors with Fabian Nicieza and Mark Bagley. And... Did a lot of stuff. I started writing Darkhawk, which I wrote every issue of. By
0: the I love Darkhawk. Oh, Great
1: 50-issue run. Oh, thank you so much. Don't forget the annuals. Oh, 52-issue okay. uh, <laughs> run? 3 53-issue three <laughs> run. Right. And, uh, and, and then at about after I was back on staff for about a year is when the Spider-Man books came open again. Because, you know, you walk away from a franchise like Spider-Man and you think, well, I'll never see that again. Yeah. Yeah. And then suddenly Tom DeFalco called me into his office one day. We've been having an argument about something, mm-hmm. and I thought he wanted to continue the argument. And I, <laughs> so I just, like, went in and just really, it's like, after five, and I was just yeah. like, whatever. And he goes, i got three new assignments for you. Oh, what? <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, and Weber Spider-Man's like. And then, if, and then like, Very six nice. months later was the adjective-less book. Uh,
0: the adjective-less book with the, the, one, the biggest Spider-Man seller of all time. Mm-hmm. What was that like to be the editor of
1: that? Um... <laughs> You know, well, Jim Salakrup was the original editor of that book, and uh, you know, he obviously started with Todd McFarlane. That was a that was a lot of responsibility because it was so high profile. Um, so it became, um, you know, just something. A lot of attention was lavished on, and so I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, it was just, well, here's another story. We have to get abs to make sense. Does the art look good? And but. You know, we were aware there was sort of a certain amount of attention on it, which, which, you know, had its good points and its bad points, you know.
0: And, uh, introduced Carnage during that run. That was a great, big, popular character. Did, did you say Venom's popular, we it, we need to do something else? Or how did the Carnage concept come
1: out? I know it's shocking that we might that we might say something's popular, let's find a way to uh, capitalize on it. Give him a brother. Um, yeah, I think... I think um, you know the black suit, the living suit had been. Man, I you know I couldn't even tell you whose original idea that was. It might have originated with Shooter, um, but you know that's lost in the in the veils of history. I'm sure somebody on Wikipedia thinks they know. Um, you know because again it was just supposed to be like a one shot gimmick. We didn't. It wasn't the. We didn't have the era of the spin off. There certainly were no movies. So Carnage, yeah, I think it. Uh, it just seemed like logical and uh, since venom had been a character who thought he was a good guy and in his you know sort of in the in the mode of the punisher of being a good guy in those days good guys didn't kill anybody that's what Maximum... so carnage uh, spawned out of that and i think we we went through a lot of different names we might even gone through spawn but eric fine was the guy who came up my who's my assistant and later became an editor and is one of the best idea men ever in comics eric came up with the idea to name the character Carnage. And and then... Then then you had the Maximum Carnage, which was in all your books. Well, Maximum Carnage, um, it was an interesting transitional period in comics where good guys did not kill. They still you to that same Silver Age credo of good guys don't kill. They find you know a clever writer finds some way to make that not have to happen that the good guy can defeat the villain and save the day without having to kill anybody or let anybody be killed or or turn the other way when somebody gets killed or let his best friend kill somebody I'm a little not pleased that the comics have gone that way but I understand why they have um and yet and then you have but you did we did have guys like the Punisher and Venom who were killing people um and then, uh, and then of course we had the, you know, bad guys, you know who were killing people because they were bad guys. Although even that didn't happen when I was a kid. But okay, it was a new, was a new era, what the hell. But I wanted to do a storyline, and this came. This was editorially directed by an editor who thought he was some kind of writer or something, and who was willing to bend the ethics and demand that his writers do his ideas, because I was fucking brilliant. Anyway. Um, Love it. But what I meant to say was... Um, um, uh, sorry the word uh, from the F word. Oh, it's I hope, all right. Hope I'm not shocking your. We don't. The FCC doesn't monitor your so. viewers. Okay, <laughs> well maybe they ought to. But um, um, I, I wanted to put a contrast between the good good guys, the gray area heroes or anti-heroes and the bad guys. And I thought, you know, and and we wanted to make a lot of money by doing a big story with Carnage, because that was that that was a trend then of like these big multi-part stories. So we started Unlimited Spider-Man number one. So I think like a lot of things in popular culture, it was a mix of having a statement we wanted to make and also wanting to sell a lot of comics. Um, it was interesting because um, you know, Jam DeMattis was writing it spectac- was writing I think Spectacular at the time. And he didn't want to be part of it. He hated Carnage, he hated Venom, he hated any of those kind of characters. And I said, well, look, Mark, you know, J.M., his name is, his friends call him Mark, because that's his middle name. Uh, I said, look, you know, now's your chance to make a statement about that, you know, in the midst of this, so why don't you try it? And he found it a challenge. And I, you know, uh, yeah, oh, me too, me too. Uh Towards the end of the run, the
0: Clone Saga. Talk about that. I imagine you get a lot of questions about that controversial.
1: Um, the Clone Saga, yes, of course, it was controversial. We yeah. knew it would be controversial. That's again, it was part of the era yeah. where you know, where for various corporate and fan-based and you know, whatever other demands, the uh, there was seemed to be a need to do big deal events, breaking Batman's back, killing Superman. Um, Cloning Spider-Man. Well, Spider-Man was cloned before. Okay. The thing, I will say that the clone story, I left in the middle of it. There was a big right. internal corporate upheaval and uh, it became weird and I went to work for Byron Price Multimedia doing virtual comics. But the clone saga started as a way, you know, it, it, the clone saga raised sales on all the Spider-Man books when industry-wide the trend was to go down. Yeah. You know, as a comic book editor, your job is to get people angry, to get readers angry enough that they have to buy every issue to see just how you're screwing up. I can't believe they did that. I'm going to buy multiple copies of the next issue. Why, those bastards, I can't... Oh, give me three more copies and put those in a plastic bag. Um, so that you, you skate that fine line between outraging people because... You know, everybody knows. If, you, if there's a book, if there's a comic you're complacent about, you go, oh, well, I'll, I'll buy that, I'll catch up with that, I'll buy it in the dollar bin, I'll buy it digitally, whatever. You know, we don't have digital back there, you know what I mean. So the idea is to keep people interested, and and I think in the back of our minds, anytime sales do start to waver, you're always going, hmm, maybe Spider-Man's too happy, or maybe he shouldn't be married. So how do we bring him back without <coughs> magic or um, <laughs> or an imaginary story or a dream? So the clone thing, we were all hesitant about it, but we also, as an editor, I had a writer's meeting, and a writer's and artist's meeting, once a year. I meet with the writers a lot, and I have the artists in uh, once a year, because the writers mostly lived in the New York area. And my writers were so excited that in the um, conference, in the hotel where we rented a conference room, the people next door were complaining to the management about how loud we were being. (laughs) Well, as an editor, that's what you want. So I just thought, you know what? My writers are so excited about this. I'll take a chance. And then that's how we got Tom DeFalco hooked into it because Tom was skeptical and then he came in. And, uh, you know, you have to take a risk. And as I say... You know, I can't vouch what happened after I left. I think then there were other marketing and and commercial forces that demanded that the books, you know, well, they keep saying that the storyline go on and on because it was so successful. Um, And, of course, the thing that people most remember is that, oh, that Peter was the clone and the clone was Peter. And, you know, I mean, that, uh, A, it went back eventually. And as you may know, they've reprinted all those stories in, in color they're and paperback. Selling. Yeah, they're still selling. So, yeah. you know, yes, I mean, uh, I was the editor of the Green lit It, you know, with, with my fingers, toes, and everything else crossed.
0: Witness protection, but you sold a lot of those. That's right, yeah. <laughs> okay, we've got uh, sev- two pages worth. Of questions. Incredible. From our message board. They
1: love you. From my vast public.
0: (laughs) The first one is from Big Al, and he says, uh, Do you have a Spider-Man story that you worked on in any way as a writer or editor that you're particularly proud of? And on the flip side, are there any stories you wish you could go back and improve on? Oh, well, I was always
1: proud of the Deadly Foes of Spider-Man, which, which is on your table. available, is available uh, in <laughs> trade paperback with the Lethal Foes of Spider-Man. I was always proud of that. You know, that was I like the uh, it was an idea that uh, John Byrne and Mark Runwell had toyed with in the '80s, and they never did it. And I said, uh, "Mind if I take that and run with it?" It was just a basic, yeah. like one sentence idea, and they said, "Sure." You know, I love the idea of doing, uh, from the point of view of the villains, I love working with Cary Gamble and Al Milgram, and I just thought it was fun to really get into those characters' heads and sort of, you know, I thought, you know, that they were villains uh, who were kind of workaday villains. You know, they were bad guys, but they mostly wanted, you know... The revenge, you know, revenge on their enemies and money, and I thought those were things that most people could understand. One
0: of my fa- one of my uh, regulars on the site is a big fan of Stegron, and
1: then Stegron, they big Stegron. Fan of Stegron? St- I love Stegron, I love. <laughs> I love a Swarm. Swarm. I love yes. the guys made out of bees. Yeah. He's a Nazi made of bees. <laughs> I forgot. That's right. That. He is a <laughs> not, you know.
0: Uh, Big Al asks, also asks, uh, what, whose idea was it to reintroduce Peter Parker's parents in the early 90s, and was it always the long-term plan to reveal them as
1: imposters? Uh, 100% my idea. Okay. Um, just because it seemed like, again, you go through the mythology, and, you know, what hasn't been dealt with? You go, know, well, Peter's parents... And uh, yeah, it was always the idea. Yeah, I, I never wanted to really uh, revive them. The trickiest thing with that storyline um, was sp- the spider sense. That's the trickiest thing about Spider-Man in general is the spider sense. He
0: could see it coming usually.
1: He could see it coming. Yeah. So the question is, you know, okay, they're imposters. So we had to play it that they didn't, that they thought they were real. Because the minute that they think that they're imposters, then, you know, then the then the level of Spider-Sense, yeah. right? You figure the Spider-Sense always has a background, huh? There's always some danger. Somebody's pointing a missile at New York or somebody's, you know... And the
0: black suit didn't set it off. That's one of the things they got around the
1: screen. Well, that was, I guess, because, right, that was, right. That was, and that was the thing, anything with Spider-Man. Yeah. So that's the tricky thing, you know, but I never intended for them... To come back fully, but I wanted to play with that. And, uh, Did you the right for them to
0: be robots, or yeah.
1: I think you know, were they robots? Were they androids? <laughs> there was some you yeah. uh, we had some fancy name for them, they were uh, human, I forget what it was. We something they were basically androids, you right, know,
0: yeah. they were like data, yeah, but that,
1: but that was, um. Yeah, that uh, that that's something I clearly remember. You know, wanting to do and you know. And
0: Big, Big Al also wants to know your opinions of Ben Riley and Kane. What uh,
1: uh, what's my opinion of Ben Riley? <laughs> um, I like Ben Riley. I mean, I, I, um, uh, I again, I thought it was interesting, uh, beyond interesting, fascinating what the writers did with the character to give Spider-Man essentially a twin brother, somebody with a lot of his memories. Somebody who maybe had a different view of the power and responsibility equation, Uh, and who was the other one? Uh, Kane. Kane. He's the. Yeah, yeah, I I know Kane was. Yeah, (laughs) I I know. I know they've done a lot of stuff with Kane. I like, you know, I like. If I didn't, I mean, one thing about being the group editor of Spider-Man is if I didn't like those characters, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have happened. So I like the concepts. I like, you know, Spider-Man. Really, the great thing about Spider-Man. And uh, I just saw the Captain America movie yesterday, but I won't give yeah. you any spoilers. I but, seen it yet. Yeah. You know, I mean, er, right, in a way, every superhero is the same, but every one of them emphasizes something different. So if Spider-Man's big thing that's different is the emphasis on power and responsibility, well, again, Kane is another riff on that, yeah. you know? Uh, so I, I always, well, I think, because really there's a limit. Right, a well choreographed and well drawn, a well written fight scene is great. But at least for me, it's all about the characters and their backgrounds and the soap opera as much or more than the cool powers. That's what that's what kept me coming back as a kid. And I have to and I have to figure that a lot of people are like that. Uh,
0: and during your run, you you uh, put out Amazing uh, Spider-Man 400 and that killed Aunt May. What do you think of the character's resurrection a few years later? Uh, uh, it's comic
1: books. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Bucky came back. Bucky know? came back. The only one. Who hasn't come
0: back? Uncle Ben has not yet come well, back. Well, Uncle Ben came back from an alternate universe with Peter David once. Ah, okay. <laughs> and who and else? he saw Jarvis dating
1: Aunt May. Right. Anybody else not come back? Um, Zemo came back. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, you know, it's um, if they can get a good story out of it. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan, say, of the spectacular Spider-Man. I mean, I... Everybody knew, going, I mean, I'm assuming, I don't have any uh, special knowledge, but yeah. I'm assuming that Peter will somehow come back as Spider-Man. He just I, came back to Spider-Man. Okay. And I, <laughs> you were right. Right. And I'm assuming that Doc Ock will somehow, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, we killed Doc Ock in the um in, uh, when when Cain when Kane, when Kane snapped his neck that time, you know. So, you know, I mean, people, that's a sort of part of, you know, if there are modern myths, then they die, they come back. You know, it's, it's, it's no longer an audience of, you know, kids from 8 to 14. It's people reading them for years and years. And I think they, you know, but it's fun to go to see them die and how they're going to do it this time. Uh, Iron Patriot is the next poster He wants to know
0: Are there any creators or story pitches That you initially rejected but came to regret Who was the Iron Patriot? He's uh, I, uh, Roddy, R- Roddy uh, Took Iron Man's armor He was in Iron Man 1, 2, and 3
1: <laughs> I, Oh, oh Wait it's a, a
0: Iron Patriot, hold on That's that's uh, Norman Osborn in the suit
1: that, I never, that, that wasn't me I had nothing to do with that No, no, that's just his handle <laughs> That's oh, a, that's his name. That's oh, so what's it? What's his question? What's his, his question? question? Is are there any pitches
0: that you rejected but came to re? The, uh, uh,
1: probably, but I can't. I mean, I'm sure, but I can't think of them right now. You know,
0: any funny stories involving the creators during your time on Spider Man? That you can share. Uh, well,
1: I will just. Uh, all I'll say is, don't ever play pool with Salby Simba for money. Okay, that's that. That's all I'll say about that. Don't. Speaking of Salby Simba, thank you so much for being on that
0: podcast. That that was my all-time favorite podcast we did when we that celebrated. Was a lot of Fun. Thank yeah. you. Thank you for inviting me on that. Uh, Mr. Metz, that's his handle. <laughs> no character. Uh, he, I really enjoyed Right Now. This is on the first page. We, we're, we're halfway through the first page. I really enjoyed Right Now. and the enjoyed Right Now, you'll love the best of Right Now. <laughs> He also enjoyed the two-part Sonic the Hedgehog story. You got that? Yeah, yeah, yeah that on there. Okay, uh, not Sonic. Either. So thank you for those. Oh, you're welcome. And, you. and his question is about the deadly foes of Spider-Man, which is uh, which is right here. here. Yes, yeah, okay. That came out more than 20 years ago, but the trade paperback is available on Amazon is, and is a major inspiration for the critically acclaimed Superior Foes of Spider-Man monthly. I guess that's just that okay. he loves your stuff. Well, thank you very much. And why do you think the uh, the story has that kind of staying power? I guess the the, the villains
1: aspect. Um, well, I I think there's two. Th- I mean, I think there are more older readers than ever, and even for the younger readers, so much material is available now in in reprints and digital uh, from their fathers and brothers and uncles. So I I think we live in this golden age of accessibility, of comics. You know, you go to your comic shop or you go to Amazon or or any website, and there's newspaper strips and comic books that I only had vaguely heard about that, like, you can get the entire run of, you know, for a reasonable price. So I think, you know, it's this strange media era we're in that Deadly Foes is like the spirit. The first time I saw the spirit was in Jules Pfeiffer's great comic book Heroes. And then I had to sort of educate myself in bits and pieces about who and what the spirit was. I think I think it's different now, so that maybe people have heard about Deadly Foes, so and just like they've repackaged the clone storyline or you know, or or so- Cyforce. Who would have thought they would repackage Cyforce, you know? But, it, I mean, you know, never mind my writing, but Mark Texera's brilliant, you know, artwork is wonderful. Yeah. So, I, I just think we live in an era where everything exists simultaneously and people can pick and choose. Yeah. Uh, you kind of answered
0: his other question. We're going to go to another one. R.D. Mac Q. And what were some of the strange moments, i.e. weird, funny, silly, you've had working on Spider-Man? Anybody get in a suit <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> for inspiration? <laughs> yeah, God. these are these are so fun. I mean, I'm sure the minute you turn the camera off, I'll go, oh, what about that? Um, anybody? People, I think there was one time in San Diego when yeah. Bill Sienkiewicz got in the spot. When Shooter took all the editors to San Diego. Yeah. Sienkiewicz got in the suit and posed for a lot of pictures. Somewhere there is a Fumetti book that was made of all the editors in San Diego. I think Jim may have the photos. Uh, I'm still waiting for that book to come out. (laughs) Um, Like I said, I'm sure there are a lot of stories, but I'm just blanking on them now, so... The next one's from Proto-Goblin. By the way, we're on page two
0: now. Page two. Uh, During the Clone Saga, what were your feelings toward the idea of trying to make Ben Reilly the real Spider-Man instead of the clone? And did you think it was a good idea that it would actually have
1: staying power once implemented? I was terrified. You know, I was terrified, but I was intrigued. And I I said before, my writers were so enthusiastic, uh, I thought it was worth taking a chance. But, you know, obviously to say to people, every Spider-Man story you've read for the past 20 years... Even if you enjoyed it, it happened to some other person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, look, I think I think so. We took a chance, and uh, to quote Tom DeFalco, you know, once he was aboard with it, you know, we were all, we were all, we were all going, what are we going to do, and what will happen, and what will I let. And Tom said, eh, the guys after us are going to change it back anyway. And <laughs> that's true, turned that's out he true. was, I think he, he might have been one of the guys after us. Yeah. So, I mean, look, that's the beauty of comics. Um, you know, it's wonderful that the that the fans care so much. Um, there was a, read the question, and there was some other. Oh, do you think it was a good idea that it would actually have staying power once implemented? You know, look, it it's it's more building blocks in the Marvel universe. They've done Kane miniseries, they've done a hundred riffs yep. on it. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't. We had no idea uh, that that people, you know, would be talking about it uh, twenty years from then.
0: Uh, what do you consider to be the best Spider-Man story you ever
1: wrote? And also, what's your favorite Spider-Man story of all time? The best Spider-Man story I ever wrote? Yeah. Well, let me start the second one. The best Spider-Man story of all time is probably the Master Planner Saga. Yep. You know, I, 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 um, I reread that over and over. That's one of those stories you can read at different phases in your life and appreciate on such a le- on such a human level what Stan and Steve did in that story um, you know, that's the famous one where Spidey lifts the yep. machinery off. But there's so rips much... so many times. It so many times, <laughs> but there's so much great character stuff. Um, you know, and the interchange between Peter and Jonah, mm-hmm. where you can just see... You know what? I know. I know Ditko plotted it, but Stan so inhabited, and you can see that he's both Peter and he's Jonah. It's him and Martin Goodman, and it's him and Ditko, and him and er- It's about the workplace. Spider-Man ultimately, in a lot of ways, became and is a story about the workplace, and you know a lot of our favorite. Uh, TV shows are about the workplace because the workplace is a surrogate family, mm-hmm. and just they were cooking on all cylinders there. Um, my favorite Spider-Man story I ever wrote it might it have been funny. Deadly, might have been Deadly Foe, probably <laughs> de- probably Deadly Foe. I'm trying to think of some others, but yeah, the, Deadly Foe is pretty safe. Uh, his last question
0: is: what, uh, Which of your two stints as Spider-Man editor do you feel was better, and what are the reasons you feel so? Uh,
1: you know, that that's like the old who, you know, "Who's your favorite <laughs> child?" I mean. Uh, yeah, they're both, yeah, they're yeah. both in their own ways. I brought different things to it. I think I brought more professionalism to the second stint, but on the other hand, everybody, it was, fre- everything was fresh and new in the first one. You know, I was privileged to have both Roger Stern and Tom DeFalco, who I think I think I think the Falco, you know, after Stan and Steve, I think the you know the two greatest Spider-Man story, the greatest Spider-Man storytellers are Roger Stern, Tom DeFalco, and uh, and Brian Bendis. Yeah. So I never got to work with Bendis uh, as an editor, um, although he tells he tells me that I rejected his samples years ago. <laughs> um, but but you know, yeah, I got to work with just the world's foremost authorities on Spider-Man
0: down. I-, I loved a lot of the supporting characters that were brought in during the Clone Saga, such as the Daily Grind characters. And do you feel that after Ben died, trying to move some of the cast to Peter's life was too difficult for writers, or just didn't fit in with Peter?
1: Supporting cast is tough, especially with a character that's in three or four monthly titles and guest stars. Um, so, uh, so I'm, I'm, you know, I don't really... I'm not really conversing everything that happened after I left... Uh, the uh, the edit, the yeah, they uh, they drop drop off. <laughs> they drop off. It's yeah. hard because, especially when you have Peter and uh, and and Ben and Kane. But I mean, I think you know, I'm always in favor of you know. And again, what I love what Bendis does uh, with Ultimate Spider Man, and in general, is to make the supporting characters important because you know the main character is is, is is, uh, is the pers- the main character is the figure that the supporting characters reflect off, and they all respect a different aspect of the main character, so they're all really important. Uh, Sir Spider Monkey, that is his handle. I didn't
0: <laughs> Looking back on the Spider-Man parent saga, what did you learn, and what would you do differently?
1: What did I learn? Um, you know, I would probably plan it out in more detail. You know, what happened is, as the editor, you come up with the idea, and then you give it to three different writers, who are, or four different writers, to go through all these different comics. And uh, I probably would have built to more of a climax than we did... Um, it was Harry Osborn behind it, I guess. Uh, it was Right, ultimately, it was Harry was a jackal. I think it was Harry, ultimately. Yeah. It had to I be somebody who knew him. Peter's yeah. identity. Yeah. Um, you know, but I mean, I think... There's something to be said for planning. There's something to said for doing stuff by the CDU. We certainly did plenty of planning. Um, and then I think there was a typo in, like, the amazing issue... <laughs> That, that, that killed me. Well, yeah, but I mean, it, it, it was about explaining what the real story was, and oh, that's fine. I and I thought we fit, whatever, you know. But so uh, I wish I, I wish I had that guy here to ask him why he asked. I'm curious what what he thinks or what why he's asking. Maybe he can. It, we have a comment section, so after we hear this, I okay. will
0: send it to you. Okay, uh, what direction or ad, uh, advisements did you give Michelini on Spider
1: Man? Um. Turn in your stuff on time? (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Get the stuff in on time. Uh, David and I had a difficult uh, uh, relationship, um, which I think is no secret. I I, I love him personally. I'm a fan of his writing. We had a different uh, philosophy about Spider Man, but the guy wrote comics that sold like crazy. So, you know, so uh, my direction was. Uh, do good comics.
0: I don't know what to tell you. Uh Last poster. Uh, Ty uh Jean 86 is his name. Okay. Acting as the editor for a major character, just how difficult it is is it to balance creating storylines that challenge the reader, yet remain true to the spirit of the character? That's to say, walking the line between giving the fans what they think they want, but also pushing the boundaries and giving them something new
1: without damaging the brand. Uh, I think he kind of asked and answered his own question. Oh, I mean, that that's the eternal challenge with every serialized character um and then the other thing you're balancing is that you have a creative staff that has ideas and and again especially if you have multiple writers and multiple artists and multiple editors um so i think what you always just you know the question that i would always try to ask myself would be if this were the first issue of spider-man would it have resonance for people? Because I didn't, you know, you don't want to do stuff, I mean, obviously there's lots of continuity, it's nice and it's fun, it's a great playground and great toys to play with, but you don't want to do stuff that's just riffs on continuity. So that would, so to me that's the hardest challenge. If if this was, you know, not just someone's, because that's the question we always ask ourselves, what if this was someone's first issue with Spider-Man, but what if this were the first issue, or the first year of Spider-Man, would it hold up? You know, so that that's the biggest challenge to me. His last question there. Another one. No, no.
0: (laughs) Now, now, wind up. here's the last pitch. Uh, (laughs) There are written accounts of how much influence was being wielded by Marvel's marketing department on the creative teams during the 90s. How uh, how much different was it creating comics when you came back to Spider-Man in the 90s compared to when you you had time in the 80s
1: on them? Um. That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, look, the comics are a commercial medium, and so your eye is always on sales, right? You can't do a comic that you think isn't going to sell. Uh, it's just, you know, some, uh, th- 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 there are different emphases in different periods. Um, so how was the question phrase? The well, what's, what's different... When the 80s and 90s woman doing Spider-Man
0: as an editor,
1: you know, from the marketing, I think it's a matter of degree. I mean, we always wanted to sell comics, and then especially when royalties came in for creators and editors, everybody really wanted to sell comics. Yeah. You know, it's just a matter of. Um, I think everybody has the same goal, and love, and and even you know, marketing people love the characters too. They just have a different mandate. So you just. Uh, do the best you can. And you try. You try. You try to be true to the character. That's all you can do. You know. Talk about what you're working on now. Tell me all about. It. You're, you're working with Wizard. I'm working with Wizard. I am uh, working as a uh, programming consultant. So I brainstorm, organize, and moderate six to ten, although this, uh, six to ten panels at every Wizard show. Um, I've been, I've been very associated with the Museum of Comic and Cartoon Art. Um, I'm writing books both in and out of the comics field. I'm working on some Marvel-related projects. Um, I'm, I teach. And um, kind of one of my passion projects is an artist named Rick Geary, famous underground and independent artist, does a lot of true murder stories. We are working together with a packager named um, Howard Zimmerman, on a graphic biography of jack ruby the guy who killed lee harvey oswald Uh and my tagline for that story is Killing Lee Harvey Oswald was not the craziest thing Jack Ruby ever did. It's a fascinating story about a guy who changed history, virtually changed reality, almost nobody knows anything about. And I, hoped, I was hoping to get it out in time for the 50th anniversary of the assassination. Um, but now that didn't happen. But hopefully the next year or so we will have that out and it will blow your mind. Can we find it on your website? Um do we get it? <laughs> well, when it's ready, believe me, you'll know. Okay. <laughs> best way to get me, I think, you know, I have a website, but I have to admit I'm not that diligent. Facebook, Twitter, those are probably the best ways to find out. If anybody wants to contact me, Danny at DannyFingeroth.com. The website is good, at least for email and, and for a general background on how wonderful I am. All right, D- Danny, it was a pleasure. Okay. I thank you very much.
0: Thank you.